0: back. Welcome to the WeGo Places podcast. We catch up with WeGo grads who share with us the story of the journey to their unique careers. I'm your host, Brian Turnbaugh, English teacher at WeGo since 2001, and you just heard new intro music from Andy Georgiev, class of 2022. Today, we talk to Megan Dalton, class of 2005, senior counsel at Clyde & Company. Megan will share with us how her knack for argument and persuasion in WeGo's senior government class led her to a career negotiating on behalf of international companies. Joining us today is Megan Dalton from the class of 2005. Megan, can you tell us what you do?
1: Sure. I am a lawyer at an international law firm here in Chicago.
0: So, Megan, can you describe how you came to be a lawyer? So after WeGo, you went off to the University of Charleston. How does a Midwestern kid find their way to Charleston on the East Coast?
1: Yeah, so uh, my grandparents lived in Hilton Head my whole life. So every summer I spent time down in South Carolina visiting my grandparents and truthfully, South Carolina has just been another home for me for several years. We would always spend a few days in Charleston um, while we were visiting my grandparents. And the real honest truth is, is that I was on vacation uh, with my parents and my best friend and my brother in Hilton Head. And my parents dropped the bomb that I could not go kayaking, that we were leaving to go to Charleston early. And I was going on a college tour, and I was so mad that I missed kayaking that I insisted in the ride that this was the only tour I was going on, and fine, I'm just going there. And I was a little stubborn and stuck with it. <laughs>
0: what what uh, what won you over about Charleston ultimately?
1: Uh, just the city. I mean, the 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 flavor of the people, the diversity, the rich history, the food. Um, and just, I mean, frankly, really the history of the city and just its own, it has its own beautiful personality, um, dating back pre-Civil War and the college just, as soon as I set foot on the campus, um, I didn't want to admit to my parents that they were right, but <laughs> it, was, it just felt like home. That's the best way it
0: is a it is such a beautiful city my grandparents lived in um, savannah for many years and we would always uh, make a trip to, to head up to Charleston and I was equally uh, enamored by it every time I went there the food as you said the history the architecture I mean there's just there's just something for everyone to love uh, when you're there it's incredible um so when when you' were at when you're at University of Charleston, or College of Charleston, I should say. Uh, what's um, How did you f- kind of begin to hone in on law and and uh, that particular field of study?
1: Well, actually, the the first uh, place that I kind of started to hone in on law, the person to blame for that is a uh, high school teacher, Mr. Healy. So he was the Uh, head of our political debate team that I was the president of when I was in high school. And he said, you know, you'd make a great lawyer. And while I was in college, I majored in international business. And I started taking some philosophy classes. And a lot of my professors suggested that I had a knack for it. And I really enjoyed the philosophy classes. So my senior year in college, a professor of mine convinced me to drop out of the honors college And not and change my honors dissertation or thesis paper, if you will, to uh, a philosophy thesis paper so that I could graduate with two degrees international business and then philosophy. And I graduated in 2009, which was right after the recession. So, unfortunately, there were not a lot of jobs in the international business world uh, for college students. So, the next best. Thing at that moment was to go ahead and uh, try to take the LSAT, which is the qualifying test to go to law school. So it's all Mr. Healy's fault, really. Uh-huh.
0: Uh, I've I have two follow up questions uh, with that. While you were at College of Charleston and within your international business, did you have any like internships or that or did you do any kind of other kind of uh, travel, uh, study abroad type of opportunity with that?
1: So unfortunately, no. And, and to be honest, it was my biggest regret that I didn't do a study abroad program, mostly because the year that I was going to do the study abroad program was when I had kind of started to decide that I was going to try to shoot for the two degrees. And it required a, a much more increased coursework in order to, to graduate within that four years. Um, but I did. Um, I did intern at a law firm down in South Carolina. And it was a plaintiff's firm that went after large pharmaceutical companies, predominantly for injuries uh, that several people had due to birth control. Mm. So right. I worked on that for about two years.
0: What, what are the type of things that you do as an intern at a law firm uh, in, in undergrad? What are some of the I mean, I would imagine you, stay, you kind of find your confidence level and competency you know, while you're there. You, so you started off doing some type of task, and then you kind of graduate to more maybe complicated things that they have you do. What was that kind of process like?
1: Yeah, so while I was in college, um, I actually worked for two law firms. So one in South Carolina while I was in school, and then another one here in the city of Chicago on my summers off when I was home. And the one in South Carolina, because it was a plaintiff's mal firm, I was in charge with looking through what was like the case packets. Um, essentially what that means is that it's the the claimant or the, the injured party's initial information, what type of medical problems they had, what type of prescription drugs they were on, and trying to determine whether or not there was sufficient information that could potentially tie those injuries To the drugs um, and the specific pharmaceutical company that my firm was filing lawsuits against. Um, In the job that I did in college here in the city, that was for an insurance defense firm. And what that what I mean by that is that insurance companies issue policies to various businesses, and when they're sued, then the insurance policy is uh, tr- is triggered and they are essentially required to find defense counsel for their insured businesses. So I worked for a firm that was hired by insurance companies to do just that. And my tasks ranged from everything from going to the courthouse uh to help with filings as well as even helping with, you know, transcribing depositions because at the time people still used Voice recorders to the partners to write their letters, and then it was my job to type the letters or the deposition testimony from the voice audio tape recording onto into the computer.
0: Go back to one more thing about philosophy because you said you had a knack uh, for that. Um, what were the types of uh, schools of philosophy, or what was it—a political philosophy, or would, do you have a preferred? Uh, uh, political philosopher that you, that really kind of, uh, drew you in that you really enjoyed and kind of going through various thought experiments. I would imagine that the type of analogous thinking that occurs within philosophy really gave you the type of intellectual muscle to be a better lawyer. would you say that there's kind of a, a crossover with that?
1: Absolutely. Um, actually one example so the lsat exam which is the exam that you sit for heading into law school there's these what they call logic problems and while i did okay on those exams and the practice tests i always really struggled so i spoke with the professor and they recommended i took a logic class and it was essentially um, an entire class just on how to, to work through those games so that That just on a practical matter, that that logic class, if you will, um, really helped me. But in terms of just the, you know, to answer your question about the political philosophers, um, I was always a huge Socrates fan, as well as Descartes. Um, And then in terms of like 19th century, early 20th century modern philosophers, if you will, uh, I was a big fan of Nietzsche.
0: Oh, well, you just made Mr. Caltagironi's heart swoon when he uh, listens to this, because that's a, a checklist of all of his favorites as well. We Oftentimes we, we debate uh, also uh, some John Rawls uh, as well. Just one more thing about logic before we head on to the next uh, question is what do you think is probably one of the more difficult, uh, in terms of the logical fallacies, what are the traps that you oftentimes see people most susceptible to uh, when you're listening to arguments? What's the one that you kind of wince when you, when you hear it happen?
1: That's a great question. And now you're making me go back to my logic class of figuring out what are those logical fallacies? Um, <laughs> I mean, I guess the one that I'm constantly reminding the so. My practice at, at its most basic uh, level or a large portion of my practice rather is is essentially contract interpretation and litigation so when you're looking over a contract it's really looking at reading very carefully and in, in what the words in each word actually means and um, you know one of oftentimes the word and will really throw people off and that can be a logical fallacy in that It actually doesn't mean A and B only. It can mean, or I'm sorry, the word or. The word or can mean A or B or A and B collectively. And so you will often find that um, is a hotly disputed term. I can't tell you how many millions of dollars the the word (laughs) or cost
0: is. Every once in a while, you'll see something like that. There were a a, a a misplaced comma or semicolon ends up, you know, like, as you said, costing millions of dollars that makes its way into the news. So you finish your time at College of Charleston and then you said that you then made your way to law school. It was up in Boston. What was the name of the school? And then uh, what was the what was it like then living up in Boston?
1: Yeah, it was uh, Suffolk University Law School and. It was, Boston was amazing. I loved Boston. I loved my time there. Boston was basically a northern version of Charleston is, is the best way I can put it. It had its own unique personality, the architecture, the history. Um, it, it was just a great town. And, um, I was very lucky. I lived close to my school, so I was able to walk to school and, you know, made friends quite early. So, I, but I, when I moved to Boston, I didn't know anybody there. So that was, that was a new adventure for me. Um, my boyfriend, whom I had met in college, was from there, but he was in the Army. So he wasn't actually physically in, in Boston. So I, I truly, it was a new and slightly terrifying experience, but worked out wonderfully.
0: So what, what's, what's first-year law student life like? Uh, what's the coursework? And, 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 and when do you begin to narrow your focus if you do it all?
1: Yeah. So your first year is basically your core classes that will all be present on the bar exam. So it's almost kind of a, a a trick really in that there's a, there's a saying with law school, the first year they scare you to death. The second year they work you to death and the third year they bore you to death and take your money. Um, (laughs) And that's really quite true. So your first year, you know, a lot of it is very overwhelming because your your classes are, you know, for the most part, one semester long and you only have one test. And that one test is your grade in your class. That's it. Um. So how you perform on that exam is your grade and how you perform in law school is dictates oftentimes where you get a job or if you get a job so the stakes are rather high um the courses that you take your first year are criminal law constitutional law civil procedure torts um and uh, i think there's a couple others in there but i oh property which i hated and i think that's about it so, and those are the main topics on your bar exam.
0: What was the kind of click where you're like, this kind of comes to me easy, or I'm just, it just, it makes sense to you. And it really kind of lined up with your aptitudes and uh, and, and interest. Uh, how did you know that that's where you kind of wanted to uh, ultimately uh, go in that direction?
1: Um, that's a great question. I, I think I always was really driven towards business. And so during my second year, I started choosing to take a few more courses that focused on, um, corporate law, banking law, um, and things in that nature to try to learn, you know, just a little bit more of, of those nuances, if you will. And at the time, I never really thought I wanted to be a courtroom lawyer. Um, it, it just wasn't, I never saw myself as you know, uh, trying cases left and right. That just wasn't something that a- appealed to me. I really wanted to, to focus more on kind of working for the large businesses and at the time, hoping to do more mergers and acquisition work. Um, but the end of my first year, I wound up getting a job at a law firm in Boston in the summer. And then I continued part-time until the end of my career that was director and officer insurance work. So it was kind of the combination of uh, the corporate law that I really enjoyed along with the the uh, the insurance stuff.
0: Oh, that's so great. Now, how long does it take you? What's the process of getting your mind ready for the bar exam? I mean, you always hear that this is like, it's kind of a, it's like, it's like a full-time job preparing uh, for that. So I was wondering how did you approach it uh, and what was your experience like when you were taking it and uh, and how did you find out that you passed?
1: Yeah. So um, I, I actually took two bars at the same time. So I, um, when I graduated law school, the firm that I was working for had given both myself and the other law clerk verbal offers. So as a result, we signed up uh, for, I signed up for the Massachusetts bar and then I, um, you essentially you graduate in May and then you start what's called Barbary classes, like prep classes um, the following Monday. So usually those begin like middle to end of June. And that means you have a lecture every single day on the topics that are on the bar exam. So it's just like going to school all over again. Um, And about mid-June, end of June, early July, right around 4th of July, I found out um, that my firm was not going to be able to actually give either myself or the law clerk jobs. They had to rescind their offers because it was still pretty bad in the recession. And so at the last minute, I signed up for the Illinois Bar Exam. So what that means is that Um, they were offset by one day. So I took the, I flew home. I took the Illinois portion, um, on a Tuesday that Wednesday, I stayed here in Illinois and took what's called the multi-state, which is a multiple choice, uh, portion. And then that night I flew back to Boston and I woke up the next morning and, uh, took the, um, exam in Massachusetts.
0: (laughs) Uh, People want to know how how does one get their their brain ready with the right brain food to uh, to, to be able to handle such an intense twenty four hours of testing.
1: Well, uh, you know, one thing that in ter- one thing that helped me was that three days before the bar exam, I flew home, and or maybe it was two days before the bar exam, and I made sure to stop studying. I didn't study for 48 hours before coming. I spent time with my parents. I read Harry Potter and I just, you know, spent time with my family. And then my dad drove me into the city. They took me out to dinner uh, somewhere. I can't remember. And then I woke up the next morning and went into the testing room and just did my thing. And thankfully, the first day of testing is it's all essays. So it was about, eight hours of essays, it was not bad. I I remember thinking like, oh, I've got this. And then my dad took me to uh, Lowry's Prime Rib that night and for an early four o'clock dinner. And I went back to my hotel and I think watched whatever, you know, thing was on probably ABC Family at the time. (laughs) Um, And woke up the next day and did the multi state uh, at which point when my dad picked me up, um, to take me straight to the airport, I cried the entire time and asked him not to drive me to Boston and that I was technically done with a bar exam and I didn't need to take Massachusetts. Cause at that point I had a job offer here in Chicago. And as he describes it, it was like dropping off his five-year-old at kindergarten where he basically had to push me out the door to get into the airport and leave <laughs> me off <laughs> Um, and then at that point, unfortunately, bad weather rolled in. So I didn't get into Boston until two in the morning, and I had to be up and out the door at five a.m. for the bar exam for Massachusetts. So I was running on Red Bull and um, peanut M Ms. I think.
0: <laughs> breakfast of champions. You hear to hear first.
1: Right. Yes, exactly.
0: <laughs> Red Bull and M Ms. That will do the trick to pass your uh, your bar exam. <laughs> That's great. How long after you took the exam or the bar exam do you then hear back? uh, And what was the what was the celebration like once you got the good news?
1: Um, So July 26th, 27th and 28th, I think, was when I took the bar exam. And then um, you don't find out in Illinois, you find out in the beginning of October. And in Massachusetts, you find out the beginning of November. Mm. So at that point, I was already working as uh, as a as a you know, assumed attorney pending my passing of the bar exam here in Chicago. And I was working with another, what we call first year, who had also just graduated. And she got her bar results an hour before I did. Oh. So the, it's a, her and I are still close friends, but the joke is, is that the managing partner came down to my office, he assumed that I failed the bar, and said it's okay. We know you just moved here from Boston. We won't fire you, but you can go home and take the day off. And I, I must've emotionally yelled like, I don't know my results yet. <laughs> so, um, Long story short, I, I did find out I passed Illinois. And at the time our the, the tradition at the firm I was with was that they take the new uh, the new kids who, who passed the bar out for drinks so we had a fair bit of margaritas.
0: Ah, well, you deserved it. I mean, ju- just the drama of having to wait <laughs> that impossible amount of time, that gap between your, your associate and yourself. Oh, that is so cruel that that happened that way. <laughs> um, oh,
1: that's funny. That's- and then um, Massachusetts is interesting. So it's an old school state. So they post all the names of those that have passed on the courthouse door. So if you, and if you don't go to the courthouse the day that they post it, you have to wait for it to be received in the mail. So none of my friends would tell me whether my name was on the courthouse door. So at this point, I was working in Chicago. And um, unfortunately, it was because a lot of our friends failed the bar exam. in Massachusetts. <laughs> um, but thankfully, one of the attorneys I used to work for in Massachusetts walked over to the courthouse and, and told me. So I found out a month later. That I passed that. So it was.
0: That's so great. What It's just it's, it's, it's just funny to hear all this type of stories about finding out and, and yeah. the behind
1: it. <laughs> it, it. It was, you know, I remember being told right before the exam by my boyfriend, you know, it's not, it's just a test. And I remember being so angry with him. But, you know, how could you mean it's just a test? You know, that's terrible. And, and just being really annoyed. And then years later, I have to say. When other young attorneys have asked me who are preparing for the bar, I've said the same thing because they're right. And I think your mindset going into it is really the most important because I had so many friends who just psyched themselves out and that's why they failed. It had nothing to do with their knowledge. They knew all the facts. They just psyched themselves out.
0: Is this the, the firm that you started at? Is it the firm that you are still with?
1: No, I'm... Uh... I have gone through four law firms since passing the bar exam. So the, that's often a joke, and as my colleagues like to remind me here. Um, so I was with a firm for three years when I first started. It was the most wonderful firm I worked with. They were great people. I was so lucky. I learned a ton. Um, but just in terms of trying to get new experiences and focus on, you know, the area of law that I wanted. Um, it, it came to a point where I knew I needed to kind of move on. And I worked for another firm for one year. And honestly, it was a really tough experience. And I actually got fired from that firm and I found a new job shortly thereafter. And then I was recruited to my current firm and I've been here for four years.
0: Now in the the career that you have with with business did you have some is there some travel involved uh with what you do under non covid uh circumstances where did it did it draw you to different parts of the country and world
1: yeah so um one of the great things about my job here prior to covid is that i routinely travel to london i often go about 3 to 4 times a year several of my clients are based in london um Leading up to leading up to the pandemic, I actually was traveling every week for about seven months straight for work. That wow. was a little expensive. Um I'm should be traveling here to Puerto Rico maybe in the next month or two. Um, so and again, non I will probably be back in London in March. I think.
0: Oh, that's so great! London's such a cool city. That's so awesome, awesome. that you get to go there.
1: It's- I would move there it's my home away from home
0: so you you were recruited to come to your new job where you are senior counsel what what does that designation mean
1: yeah so um because we're i'm a i actually work for a british company so we're we're based in london or a british firm we're based in london so senior counsel is a fancy term for basically non-equity partner
0: and what does a non-equity partner mean for for those who don't know
1: Basically, mean, so um, oftentimes when you hear the name partner, it means that they have actual equity in the firm, that they own part of the law firm um, and they get, you know, profit payouts, for lack of a better term or phrase. Um, non-equity partner basically means that we have uh, the responsibilities, some of the responsibilities to that of a partner in that we oversee associates. We are often the second person on the file. So there are several files that I run with. You know, I have a partner ahead of me, but I run the day to day operations and have a handful of associates underneath me that help run the file.
0: So speaking of like day to day operations, um, how many cases do you typically have at any given moment and what's your favorite kind of case to get?
1: Um, so it's, uh, that's a great question as it changes. Um, currently I have about six to eight cases. I used, to, I came from the practices I came from before I really focused on what I do now. I would have anywhere from 30 to 60 cases. Yeah. Um, now because of the pandemic and things kind of shifted. And so my, my work while it's still in the insurance sector has there's been a bigger focus on bankruptcy so bankruptcy cases often are much bigger for example one of the ones i'm working on now is um, dealing with about 500 million dollars that are missing and so we have 90 some parties involved in the case so it's much bigger and requires a lot more day-to-day tasks if that's drafting motions, if that's communicating with opposing counsel, often it's putting out fires for the clients. Um, currently, it means I'm reviewing lots of loan documents and bank statements and trying to track down and find where this $500 million went. <laughs> um, so that's kind of a little bit of detective work. So it, it, it really just depends, and it also depends on the client's needs. and. Um, you know, interestingly, the insurance industry is anti-cyclical. So when there's a recession or the economy is a little unstable, my industry booms. So oh, it's, it's a great, uh, risk averse, you know, it's, it's a great job industry to be in when you're risk averse. Um, because on, um, you know, unlike many in the pandemic, I was, I had a lot of job security, which was great
0: you said that you had to almost do some type of investigative work and kind of detective to be able to kind of go through bank records and all that. It, I mean, it was that, is that part of any of your schooling where you have to kind of do that kind of forensic, uh, almost, um, accounting account work, or do you have people who maybe you task that to and they, they kind of do the investigation for you. Um, and how, how does that work?
1: So, um, for me, and part of the reason, so the partner that I work with the most has also a business background. So, you know, one of the reasons why the two of us, I think kind of linked up and a lot of my work is done with him is, is for that same reason that I have a similar background. So, you know, in a lot of respects with the forensic accounting, I can look at bank statements, balance sheets, um, corporate loan documents, things in that nature. And I can, you know, Pretty intuitively see, you know, what it says or what it is versus if I gave that to, you know, a different attorney who was an English major, they probably wouldn't know what, you know, know about that document or how to read it. Um, so I have a little bit of an advantage there, but if we are litigating specific financial documents or account, uh, accounting records, so on and so forth, you often always hire an outside financial consultant or an accounting firm to kind of do that work for you, especially if it's a pretty voluminous.
0: The stamina to maintain a level of concentration, to be able to truly be able to interpret even something like the minutia of what does and, or the or, or where the placement of a comma in the grammar may set things in totally different uh, interpretation. how would you describe like, the, the, your strength as a reader when you have to pour over so many documents and, and all of that? Because I would imagine that's, that's, that's a skill set that many people don't have and have to really kind of build towards to be that competent. Uh, how, did you, how did you get to that level of confidence?
1: Um, I think it's just practice to be honest with you, I've always been a really big reader and I genuinely enjoy reading. And it's interesting. A lot of my friends who are lawyers who are courtroom lawyers hate reading and they don't read outside of, of the practice of law. Um, all of my colleagues, because we are, you know, more while we litigate, it's much more over like contracts and, and, um, you know, large corporate transactions or large environmental pollution spills that require review of, you know, tons of historical documents. All of us are really big avid readers, so I think it's just practice. And and you know, I come home at every morning when I take the bus to work. I read, um, not work related things, but I just read books or you know, and I read the newspaper. But mostly, I always have a book in my backpack.
0: Uh, I teach AP language, and I'm really interested in audience persuasion, all things rhetoric. And I was wondering, you know, you, what do you think is the most persuasive uh, approach to winning an argument or, or just being persuasive? What are some of the the things that you see that, you know, are tried and true techniques?
1: Um, so I think for each individual, it's different. And my, I think you know instantly when you're up against someone whether or not they're comfortable in their form of argument. And oftentimes, where I find you know, my aha moment, if you will, whether it's in mediation or in a courtroom, um, it's when I know that I've got the person out of their comfort zone and, and, or, you know, if they're trying a different style of arguing. I think the the best in terms of persuasion is, is really listening to the person, but also reading their body language, because more often than not, my, my experience has been that you win your points, not by what is said, but, but what is not said. And that's where you often can find the holes in the other, other's argument.
0: Yeah. that that's so interesting because you're, you're right because you know there's so much that is offered but it's it it's within those gaps that could be most telling in terms of less is more oftentimes with uh what is what is shown that remi- it reminds me of this um uh, you know the, the poker metaphor right of calling bluffs showing and not showing and all that so um that's interesting
1: yeah and that's what so one of the Each firm and my office in particular, like we have attorneys that are phenomenal writers, much better writers than I am. And and, and that has always been a skill for me that I've been very self-conscious about and I constantly have to work on my writing. Um, But one thing I've always been fairly confident in is actually my negotiation skills. So as a result of that, the partners often, whenever there's mediations, I'm the one that's brought in to do that, is doing the negotiations and settling the cases.
0: What's your favorite type of case to, to litigate?
1: I don't know if I have necessarily a favorite type. It's really a matter of my favorite type, if you will, is really one that ends in a mediation and where I'm able to kind of get in the room and kind of flex those skills in negotiation and, and just what we, we call them in my office, human skills. Um, essentially, because oftentimes lawyers are, as you know, so detail oriented and have to, and they have to be, and they have to be, you know, so focused on the written word and, and, and the reading that they lose that, that other aspect of the oral communication. And so that's kind of, that's kind of the fun part for me. No, i was just say, so it doesn't really, there's not necessarily a specific type of case, but I also the ones with the most fun facts, like I'm, I'm in a bankruptcy case now where one of the bad actors owned tigers and several, several homes throughout the world, um, before he was arrested by the FBI. So just kind of fun facts like that.
0: Where do you see yourself in maybe five, 10 years? I mean, are you still being doing the same thing or are you be moving up to partner? And ideally, is that a, a direction where you want to go?
1: Um, to be honest, that's a question I ask myself every day. Hi. So, this um, I'm, I've been so grateful for the career that I've had and I work with amazing people, but the practice of law in particular with litigation and, you know, balancing, you know, work life obligations, it's very tricky and it's becoming more and more tricky, um, just given the current climate in the industry. So, The next progression is, is, yeah, working towards partner. But in order to do that in my firm, you have to get about a million dollars worth of your own business. And that's, you know, uh, that's another hurdle. And I've also explored, you know, just starting to explore other opportunities within my current firm that may not necessarily be the stereotypical path to partner, if that's something, if I'm not sure that I want to be burning the midnight oil every night, which seems to be the track record that I'm.
0: Currently on. Megan, I was wondering too, like, are there any, like, good, you know, just in, for any student that might be listening to this that is considering law, are there any, like, good, like, initial books about law that are, like, just not really wonky and really tied into procedural things, but ones that are, like, just really good first you know, books about law that would really kind of set the hook for uh, a a potential uh, young lawyer that might be uh, going into the field?
1: You know, I that's a great question. and I, gosh, I don't really know. I mean, besides, you know, the standard fiction lawyer books, I actually can't think of one. And it may be embarrassingly to say, because whenever I'm not doing my job, uh, the books that I tend to gravitate towards are the complete opposite. Um, So (laughs) the sun sun also rises is what's currently in my, my bag.
0: Oh, nice. Nice. Megan, this has been great. And I always end the interviews with uh, the opportunity for the guests to give words of wisdom or advice for current wildcats. What would you offer for them?
1: Um, I guess I would offer, don't be afraid to reach out to alumni or if anybody wants to learn more, I'm, I'm more than happy to, to chat with them. The last, all of my professional jobs, I did not get because I submitted a resume. I got them because I was networking and I got to know people. And so never be afraid to strike up a conversation with a stranger. Never be afraid to ask for help. Ask your teachers what their plans are. I mean, again, I wouldn't be in the position that I am now if it wasn't for Mr. Haley. And don't be afraid to second guess. I think that I'm learning that lesson now. That's And correct. think about what you want.
0: Well, Megan, thank you so much. This was great. And uh, I wish you the best of luck. I learned so much as always. Uh, this, was, this was fun.
1: Thanks. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for listening. You can follow WeGo Places on iTunes and Google Podcasts. Just search WeGo Vox, that's WeGo V O X, or search on Facebook for WeGo Places Podcast.